Good morning, Grace Church. Um, if, as I'm talking, if you can open up your Bibles to Psalm 84, that's where we will be this morning. Um, but just really quick, I just want to say, um, you know, thank you to, uh, to Grace. I, I started this internship back in September, October, and um, I just want to say to this church family, thank you for embracing me. Thank you for welcoming me. I felt comfortable day one, and I still feel comfortable and at home here um, all the months after. And so I, I truly, sincerely mean that from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. And um, to the staff, I honestly, um, my favorite part of this internship were Mondays. And I know that sounds weird because Mondays aren't usually fun. But our staff meeting where we just gathered around, prayed for each other, prayed for the congregation, talked about this church. Um, yeah, I, I, those, those moments will, will stay with me. And um, I just, I really, I genuinely appreciate the relationships that I built with you guys. Um, even that staff retreat, I was like, okay, and we, we can play some games and have some fun. Um, so I thank you. I thank you guys truly from the bottom of my heart. Um, if I keep going, I might lose it. So I'm going to keep moving on, okay? Um, so we're in Psalm 84. And it's interesting because, the, you know, the book of Psalms, it's a place where your heart truly, the heart of each writer comes out. And I think in all of us in life, we see that life has its ups and downs. And I'm looking at the festivity of, of the church today, and I'm like, man, the message might be going pretty deep today for what's look at what I look around. Um, but it's the psalm. It's not me. I promise. We're just following the words of the writer. Okay? So I want to start off by saying in Psalm 84, um, if you find a picture, if you found my yearbook, you would see a picture of little Matt Smith just kind of, you know, holding his chin up. And it would say under it, it would say, a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. That's my quote um, in high school. And, um, and I realized that any journey in life, it always begins with some kind of glimpse. You catch a vision. You catch some beauty. And once you see it, it's a treasure. And once that thing becomes your treasure, you have a decision to make. That decision is, are you going to say yes to the journey of getting to know that treasure? Or are you going to say no, and you're going to move on to another treasure? But it always starts with a glimpse. It always, when you think about a marriage, when you think about uh, uh, any relationship, you see someone, you're like, I don't know what the rest of the years are going to um, come, but I feel like I have enough to say yes to this journey with this person. Does that make sense? And so when I think of life, and I think of the scriptures, you see through all throughout scriptures that the Bible uses the journey of pilgrimage as a, as a, as a metaphor, as an analogy of life. And Abraham, he was our first pilgrim where God gave him this promise that he was going to give him a son and descendants as numerous as the stars. And he said yes to the journey, he walked with God. And we see that the Bible calls us citizens of heaven, that when we say yes to Jesus, we begin this walk and this journey of being citizens of heaven. So the pilgrimage is a powerful metaphor. And, and I think about, there's a, a quote by Phil, I'm not even going to try to pronounce his last name, Kusina, uh, yep, I'm going to stop. But it's by a man named Phil. And it says this, pilgrimage is a powerful metaphor for any journey with the purpose of finding something that matters deeply to the traveler. 
This psalm that we're going to read today tells us the journey of when someone says yes to God and lets you know the beginning, the middle, and the end. And I pray that as we go up and down the journey of this psalm, you could see and relate the journey of your own life, the journey of with, with God, and then ultimately the hope that allies us, um, that waits us at the end. And so I look at this and I say, let's start reading Psalm 84. That was a long intro, but here we go. It starts by saying this, to the choir master, according to the Gittith, Gittith a psalm of the sons of Korah. I know one thing about the Gittith, Gittith is that if you find the instrument, which I don't know what it is, but if you find it, Ilya will know how to play it. I can guarantee you that. That's all I know. The second thing I know is that it's a psalm written by the sons of Korah. And why that's a little important is because the sons of Korah were, they had a father and their name was Koath. And he led a rebellion against Moses of 250 people. And when he led this rebellion, he ended up getting judged for it. And I think it's just a little important because the writer of this psalm, the sons are writing this of this man named Koath. And I just think, man, the legacy of their, their story isn't pretty. It doesn't start off pretty. But yet, when we see this psalm, it's beautiful. And you could see that this is someone who has journeyed with God. So, let's go. Verse 1. It says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs. Yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. And my heart and flesh sing for the joy, for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Selah. The first portion of this psalm, I'd, I'd like to title, it's the source for your journey. This is the first point. It's the source for your journey. When you begin to say yes to God and you answer the call to go on this journey, this pilgrimage with God, you have to understand who and what your source is. And in the first four verses of this psalm, you can see what this man's treasure and source is. It's God himself. He's not longing for the things of, of the world. He's not longing for the things that are in the house of the Lord. He's longing for the person who owns the house. He's longing for the person who is in the house. And I love this because in Matthew 13, it says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Brothers and sisters, the man who's writing this psalm, clearly his treasure is God. And how do you know this? Because his language in these first four verses are no longer filled with religion. They're no longer filled with a feeling of distance from God or a condemnation or anything like that. It's filled with poetry and love. He's saying God is near and I long to be near to him. He is speaking, you know, just to be honest with you, he's speaking with a love language that in this time period, you have to say it's kind of like game. He's saying I long and faint for you, oh God. 
It's incredible when I see this. But he's not longing for the dwelling place of the physical. He's longing for the dwelling presence of God. And I look at this. This is my favorite part. He says, my heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. You know, this poetry is simple. Jesus says in Mark 12, verse 30, it should be up on the screen. He says this. He says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and all your strength. That's what this man is saying here. He's saying my heart and my flesh long for God. The beauty of any intimate relationship is that you can't divorce actions and heart. They're a mirror of what's going on. You see that? When you think about any kind of relationship that you have to anything, you need the actions and the heart, the heart and the actions. The outward actions are a reflection of the inward motivations, and your inward motivations cause you to produce an outward action. And so they can't be divorced. They're part of it. It's who we are. And he's saying, my heart and my flesh long. You know what I think of? When Aaron Judge hits a home run for the New York Yankees, and I start jumping up with joy, and I'm shaking hands and jumping with a stranger at Yankee Stadium on my right side, that is crazy. But we both know that we love the Yankees, right? You can't divorce them. And what God is saying is that he's saying with us, your walk with him It's a thing that sometimes because God is invisible, we think that it's hard to be intimate with him. But he's given us all these imageries of what relationship with God looks like. He gave us family, marriage, friends, work. He uses all of these as illustrations for us to understand that he is our father and we are children of God. That we are the bride and he's the bridegroom. It's a beautiful, but here's the problem. But sin and broken relationships, broken things of this world, they start to cloud those illustrations for what God has for us. But intimacy, intimacy, intimacy always, always cannot be divorced by both the heart and the flesh. And so when we can't divorce heart and flesh, then what's the other issue that comes on here? is that what, where it gets tough is that there's usually only a few people who truly know that when your actions and your heart are in alignment, sometimes what we can do is we could trick people. We could trick people with our actions and we could say, hey, once a week it can look like my heart is filled with a love for God. But what if I ask the closest people in your life today, do you really Do you really have a life that is devoted and that God is your treasure? You see that? It's intimacy. It's intimate people that are able to know where your true relationship with God is. And you know who is the most intimate with you at all times? It's the good shepherd. It's Jesus. 
He's the one who can always align you and say, hey, your actions are becoming religion to gain love instead of your actions being knowing that you are loved and you're walking with the joy of the Lord because you understand that you were not the one who made yourself righteous or made yourself good, but that you know that Jesus did that work. He's the one who will prick your heart over and over again, ensuring that you are not working for your salvation, but that you are walking out your salvation with him. Does that make sense? And so I love this quote from Spurgeon. He says this about the psalm, about the first four verses. He says this, there was no superstition in this love. He loved the house of God because he loved the God of the house. His heart and flesh cried out, not for the altar and the candlestick, but for his God. That's the source. Brothers and sisters, we're looking at mega. We look at the altar, um, the, the call to worship. We come to church each Sunday. We fast. We have prayer nights. We have kids worship. We have life gate. We have common ground. We do all these things. We have greeters. We have all these things going on in church. But it's all for one reason, that when you come through the doors, you will encounter the God of the house. That you will, that your kids will encounter the God of the house. That's the source of our joy. That's the source of our walk. It's to have, it's to know that you are coming here to encounter the God of the word. We don't read our Bibles to gain more knowledge or just to quote scripture. We read the Bible because we believe that it's living and that the person who wrote it is still living. You see that? This is the beauty, and our, our, there's a book. If you ever want to deep dive deep into the celebration of d disciplines, there's a book by Richard Foster. But I love what he says. He says in the book, the disciplines of the Christian walk are a means for nothing more than his presence. Once you miss that, once you're doing the disciplines for any other reason, you're missing the point. You're missing the source for your journey. But brothers and sisters, why is it important for your heart to be purposed and set on the presence of God? Because verse 6, because verse 5 and 6 come next. So let's look at it. It says, blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. The reason why your heart needs to be set on chasing after the presence of God is because the valley of Baca is the part of the journey for every pilgrimage towards God, for every pilgrim towards God. So you're probably asking, what the heck is the Valley of Baca, right? I hope you are. If you're not, you're not following me to this morning, right? But what's the Valley of Baca? See, in this imagery here, he's saying, blessed are those whose strength is in you. He knows his source. Who's his source? God. He's saying his heart and his mind is set towards Zion, going to be with God, and then he says, as they go through the Valley of Baca. You know what the word Valley of Baca is? The word Valley of Baca means it's a valley of weeping. 
or tears. It's here in this valley that trees lived, and it's, they were actually called baca trees. And I have a picture of them, but they used to drip something. It was a, a gum-like tears. Can you guys see it? They used to drip all these gum-like tears, and that's where the, the trees got the name, the Valley of Weeping, the Valley of Tears. So can you imagine you're walking through this valley and you're seeing all these tears, these teardrops from trees, and the psalmist is using it as imagery for part of the journey that we all go through in life. See, we don't know exactly where the Valley of Baca is today. We don't know exactly, but scholars are sure of two things. One, it was where the trees were, that these trees existed. And number two is that it was on the way to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. So what it means is that every year when the Jews were pilgriming towards God to the temple to worship, they would have to go through the valley of weeping, the valley of tears. We may never have been to the valley of weeping in Israel. Some of you might be going, I don't know. But I can promise you that every single one of us in this life have been to this valley. You've been to the valley that has caused you tears. You've been to the valley of your life where your life was changed by one sentence. You've been to the valley where you were called to sorrow. You may not have cried physical tears, but God knows the tears that were crying in your heart. John Piper says this, the call to suffer for Jesus is often sudden and costly and seemingly random. But the Bible tells us that the cost of the Valley of Baca is part of the journey that each one of us go through when we say yes to God. So why? What's going on? It's here in the Valley of Baca where we see that businessmen and businesswomen, they face the work disappointments of life, the fear and the trembling of where work is going to go as they look at their family. It's in the Valley of Baca that people are battling depression and anxiety, waiting to get out of it. It's in the Valley of Baca where there's illnesses and diseases of this broken world. It's the Valley of Baca where you see grief that takes place when you mourn for a loved one. It's in the Valley of Baca where a spouse may hear that they've been cheated on as they look at their kids. It's in the Valley of Baca where parents hear the news that they can't conceive on their own. It's in the Valley of Baca where news of a miscarriage is heard. This is the valley that this psalmist is talking about. And it's the valley that comes to us all in unique shapes and forms. But I want you to understand something. If God made sure that your fingerprint was one of one, that means that your journey is one of one. That if he made sure that your fingerprint was one of one out of every single person that was ever made in this universe, I guarantee you that he cares about the journey that you're walking with him with God. That's the beauty of what this valley of Baca is. That's the beauty of this psalm, is that we start high, that God is our treasure. We caught the glimpse, and now we're low in the valley of Baca, but God is testing, do you still trust that glimpse that you saw day one? Do you still have the heart to say, God, I don't just want the things that you give me. I want you. That's what the Valley of Baca produces in our walk. So what happens in this valley? You're tempted 
to do one thing. You're tempted to not trust God. You're going to hear the thoughts that say, you know what? I've been walking, but maybe I should just go back. This is getting tough. You're going to hear the thoughts that say, is God really with me still? Has he forsaken me? Is God punishing me? God must not be good. Is he still leading me? You know, marathon runners will talk to you about something on a marathon. Marathon is 26 miles. I don't know about you, but I'm not running 26 miles. But they'll talk about something called the sticky middle. And what that means is at mile 18 to a mile 23, they call it the middle end or sticky middle. Mile 18 to 23 is where it gets the hardest for every marathon runner. That they're so close, but they've come to the point where they're running in the, in the race and they can't see the, the starting line, but they still can't see the finish line. That is the biggest temptation to quit. It's in the sticky middle. And I love that in this verse, there are 12 verses in this psalm. And where is the valley of Baca? In verse 6. The hardest part of the test of the valley of Baca is can you trust God? And all of these temptations, when they come, they're testing this. And I think here's the, here's the part that I was thinking of too is if, as you're in this valley, when you're in a valley, when you look left, that means you have a mountain on your left. And when you look right, you have a mountain on your right. And it's in the valley when you start to look left and you see your own sin. And you say, man, is this why I'm here? And then you look to the right and you see the valley, uh, you see the sin of the world. And you say, man, this world is tough. But then I look at the verse and it says, as they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. It doesn't say it may become a place of springs. It doesn't say it might. It says it will become a place of springs. So how does this happen? How do you look left? You look right. You're in the valley of weeping. But God is telling you, I promise this is turning into a valley of springs. And I think it's because of this. When we're in the valley of our journey of our life, when we're in this valley, God tells you one thing. Do you trust that I finished the work on the cross and joined you in this valley? You see, brothers and sisters, you're not in the valley alone. My God came down from heaven, and he didn't choose a beautiful place. He chose Nazareth to be born, where it says no good comes from. He didn't come to minister and heal the, the wealthy and the rich. He came to look for the brokenhearted and the lost and the demonized. He said, those are the people I shall serve, the lowly. My God didn't choose to get baptized in a great river. He chose to be baptized in the Jordan River, the lowest place on earth. My God didn't come to, 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 to seek the fame of the highest. He seek the glory of his father. And then he goes to a garden of Gethsemane and he weeps the tears and drops, sweats blood. 
saying that I will join you in this place. That when we traded him in for Barabbas, we traded him in for a criminal. He said, I'll keep going. And then he looks at the cross. He picks it up and he carries it to his own death. It's beautiful. The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus didn't just say, I'm sending you to the valley. The beauty of the gospel is that he said, instead of just snapping my fingers to fix it, I'm going to join you in that valley. Jesus said some of the most important words on that cross. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Brothers and sisters, when he said those words on that cross, he was bearing the pain and the sins of the world. He was bearing the pain and the sins of the world. And he said the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you and me would never have to say those words in our day of trial. So this is, the, this is what the fuel is in the Valley of Baca. It's that you're chasing after the presence, but then you're not losing the, the imagery. You're not losing the, the sight of what Christ has done for you in the good news. And then he says this in verse 7, they go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. You know, I love this because when he says this, he's saying when you've run the full course, when you've made it through the valley, the imagery is that you will stand before God in Zion. That's the beauty of this psalm. Do you see the ups and downs of it? That we're starting high, we're going low, and now we're reminded that we will stand before God. Job says, I know my Redeemer lives, and I shall see him face to face in my flesh. That's what got people through their pilgrimage with God. See, we'll look at the valley, we'll look at the troubles, and we'll say to ourselves, if it gets us to see God, then you'll say yes to the trial. You know, in, in Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 through 4, it says this. It says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with him and they with his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I love this because I feel like that's the hope of what this psalmist is, is seeing. Is that he's seeing that his Lord not only joined them in the valley with him, but then he's also seeing the promise that the valley was worth it. Because he will stand before God and Jesus will know that every tear that you poured out in that valley was not wasted. He will wipe away every tear. There shall, there shall be no more mourning. You will stand before the creator of the universe and he will say, thank you for coming with me on this pilgrimage of knowing me. You see, it's not about the destination, brothers and sisters, of the pilgrimage. 
And it's not even about necessarily the full journey. It's about the company that you keep through the journey. So I'm going to wrap up with this. I'm coming to a close. I have no clue where I am at time, but I hope I made it. Yeah? All right. Um, look what it says here. It says, let's go back to the scripture, verse 9, as we finish it out. It says, behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. He finishes the psalm with blessed is the one who trusts in you. That's the final point. This is what this whole journey tends to be about in the sense of all the ups and downs. Is that do you trust God? It's easy to say it. But what is it? You can't divorce heart and the flesh. And so God sends the trials sometimes or allows the trials to come. Because then you'll know that your heart and your actions are married. That your heart and actions towards God are one. It's blessed are those who trust in God. There's a, vote, there's a quote by William P. Young. He says, trust is the fruit of a relationship in which you know you are loved. That's a two-way street, brothers and sisters. When you trust God, you, he knows that you love him. And when you, when you see the faithfulness of God show up in your life, you know you're loved. It's not just this one-way street. It's a two-way thing. You see, trust in the midst of trials is where red flags start to get purified. It's when you go through the hard times with someone is that you truly know this person's with me. The Bible says that Jesus came his first time. In Isaiah 53, it says he came his first time as a man of sorrows. But when he rose up from that grave, he was seated at the right hand of the Father, filled with glory. When he comes back a second time, he will not be the man of sorrows this time. He will be Prince Charming. He will be the one that when you see him, you're going to say, oh, my goodness. This is the one who came down as a man of sorrows, but now he comes on clouds filled with glory. You know, I'm going to quote this incredibly romantic movie. All right, you ready? It's from, I actually, I'm going to read the quote and see if you guys know the movie. Here's where she meets Prince Charming, but she won't discover that it's him till chapter three. Can everybody tell me what movie that is? Beauty and the Beast. I mean, that is, I'm just showing my soft side up here, right? But honestly, I love the beauty of that word right there. She's meeting Prince Charming, but she won't discover that till chapter three. My brothers and sisters, 
You're walking with the Lord. You caught a glimpse. We've caught a glimpse today. Keep walking with him. In the valley of Baca, keep walking with him. When it turns into springs, keep walking with him. Because when you see him again, he will not be the man of sorrows. He will be Prince Charming. So I'm asking you today to think about this. Jesus is asking you, if you'll join him on this journey, if you will join him on this pilgrimage, no one will snatch you out of his hand. He is the good shepherd. He loves you. You're the apple of his eye. And if you keep your eyes on him, I can promise you he will take you home safely to those golden shores. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I, um, I thank you, Lord, for um, just your word. I thank you for the depth of this scripture and the realness of it. And I pray that, um, Lord, I pray that everyone in this room that no matter where they are in their journey with you, I pray, God, that they would never give up on trusting you. You are worthy. Your word has never failed. You have never failed us. You have never been late. You are always on time. You have joined us in the mountaintops and you have joined us in the valley. You put on flesh so that we could know how much you love us. I'm praying, Lord, that all the things that everyone may go through, that they would not forget the uniqueness of who they are in you, of how much you love them individually, how much you care for them. And I pray, Lord, that this church would continue to be a church that although we all have our unique journey, that we would bring our journeys together and we would uphold each other's arms in the fight to continue to trust you, oh God. God, there's people in this church who need healing. There's people in this church who are mourning. There's people in this church who are battling anxiety and depression. There's people in this church who are fighting the good fight. And I'm praying, Holy Spirit, that you would encourage my brothers and sisters that you would encourage us to look upon the truth of the gospel, the truth of the cross, and to never let it go. Lord, show us every day how great you truly are. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.